Welcome back to Talk Evidence, the evidence-based chat from the BMJ. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor, and as always, I'm joined by your two favourite EBM experts, let's say this time. Uh, Helen, for a start, introduce yourself. I'm Helen MacDonald, the BMJ's UK research editor. Hi, I'm Carl Hennigan. I am editor-in-chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine. And? And one of your favourite evidence-based nerds from the Centre for <laughs> Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford. Um, well, as always, we're here to talk about evidence, uh, what's been going on in the last month or so. Each week, we talk about things to start and stop doing. And this week, I saw that there was some advice to actually stop doing things. That thing was eating bacon. Carl, I'm looking at you. You're looking slightly... Uh, yes, well... He's the only there. one that eats animals in this room. <laughs> That's yeah, true. Yeah. That I'm well. a minority here at the moment. Headlines were, ration of bacon a day ups your cancer risk, everywhere over the news. So I'm going to have some instructional stuff here, but a bit of a rant to start with, because... I have this sort of cancer risk study fatigue going on in me at the moment. So I I went and had a look at all the news headlines that have been happening just in the last six months. And people love this in the news. You can get things like morning people have lower breast cancer. Height, if you're taller, that increases your risk. Processed meat is in there a lot. Obesity. Uh, Bacon's been in there because of nitrites. And in fact, even cabbage can stop cancers has been in there. Stop cancers? Yeah. Being too fat or too thin is bad for you. Lack of exercise, no alcohol level safe to drink. There's loads of these studies all the time. And I have to say, they are having an effect on me because this weekend I planted some cabbages. (laughs) (laughs) So the question is, this study that came out, published in the Journal of Epidemiology, was about looking at the UK Biobank study. That's a large study that collected information, quite detailed information on half a million people, and now he's following them up. They did questionnaires, but also basic physiological measures and took some blood and some genetics. And out of the half a million people, after six years, they found that 2,609 people developed bowel cancer. And they estimated that eating three rashes of bacon a day, I don't eat three rashes of bacon, I've never met anybody who does that. What, you rather, go for more? That <laughs> rather than just one could increase the risk of bowel cancer by 20%. That's a lot of bacon, isn't it? There must have been some people. So the first thing that always three make, rashes a day. This said eat it. Well, if it says twenty one a week. Yeah, for every so because they they rationalise that into is the amount of grams of red and processed meat a day you eat, and the the UK government Department of Health says that you should eat no more than ninety grams of red meat. But they're saying actually it should come down to seventy grams because the people between seventy and ninety are still at 20% more risk. Now, we now have another problem, is what does 20% more risk mean? This is the use of relative risk. It frightens people, and then before you know it, we all stop eating our bacon. But I actually get behind the headlines and try and understand what's been going on here. And there's been a colleague I've known for many years who's talked a lot about this, about our poor understanding of risks. That's David Spiegelhalter, who's amazing in explaining this. And he sent out a a really interesting tweet, which I looked at. He said, the cancer risks of bacon are around double that reported before. That means 100 people would need to eat a bacon sarnet every other day for their whole lives for one extra case of bowel cancer. Using previous estimates, it would have had to been every day. 
So that's how he tries to explain it. Well, I feel okay because I do not eat bite bacon sandwiches every other day. In fact, I don't even have breakfast in the week, so that's gone. But on the weekend, I still like my bacon sandwich. And I think this says that I'm still okay, but I need to think about and be moderate about my intake. And he also says, how might you think about risks for things that are frightening versus things that are actually dangerous? There was a very good example in California of this, that California decided to ban coffee. Now, that's because some of the coffee cups, or I'm not sure it's coffee, or was contained a, uh, a compound called acrylamide. Mm-hmm. And acrylamide had been registered by the WHO as a cancer-causing agent. But the amount was so minute that actually the benefits of drinking three cups of coffee a day are well established, that you wipe out the benefits which are far greater than the risk. So we tend to think about everything as frightening. However, what we should be thinking about is, is it actually dangerous at this level? Mm. And what happens if you have a bacon and sauerkraut sandwich? Does that balance it out? Yeah, I guess it's this. So when you look at the, the thing that's interesting here, though, is if you look at when they always say this, if you start to look behind the headlines, you see that things like obesity attenuates some of the risk, alcohol attenuates some of the risk, and smoking attenuates the risk. And so, you know, it's not an excuse that if you stop eating your bacon, you can throw a healthy lifestyle out, out the window. That actually it still comes back to this common sense argument that it's about living healthy, healthy diet, taking some exercise, cutting your alcohol intake, don't smoke, that's a no. And actually, what bit of that is lost when you keep pushing it's about this one type of food versus it should be more about, actually, are you partaking in a healthy diet? And if people are interested to know a little bit more about nutritional epidemiology and these kind of risks, um, last year we published some really interesting podcasts about the science of uh, food and uh, why it is that, uh, as you say, looking at the whole diet and thinking about you know, eating properly is better than concentrating on individual is it protein, is it carbs, is it anything? Well, I like Cancer UK's advice, actually. Here's what they say. They say, so our advice on diet stays the same. Eat plenty of fibre, fruit and vegetables. Cut back on red and processed meat and salt and limit your alcohol intake. It might sound boring, but it's true. <laughs> Healthy living is all about moderation. It is. Great. Well, so that's a don't stop, potentially, there from you, Carl. Well, can I say, though, it's the BMJ Awards today and you're dressed ready for it (laughs) and there will be red wine and white wine there and I will be expecting you to take that in moderation. Absolutely. Always. Uh, So, Helen, you were going to talk about the research paper of the year. Um, It's on a topic that makes me and perhaps every other man who uh, listens to it tense a little bit. Um, Biopsying the prostate. Exactly. Yes, um, yeah, so the uh, research paper which uh, which has won um, the BMJ Awards Research Paper of the Year this year is a paper that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and it was looking at trying to improve the diagnostic pathway for men with a raised PSA beneath 
20 nanograms per milliliter, um, so i.e. not sort of egregiously high, plus or minus an abnormal um, rectal examination, uh, which might suggest that they have cancer of the prostate. And currently, um, the gold standard test would be to do an ultrasound-guided biopsy, but that's quite an unpleasant procedure to go through. And there are concerns that that both you get uh, false negatives from that, so you underdiagnose um, and miss some cancers, and also that you get some false positives, so you over-treat then uh, men who actually don't have cancer of the prostate. So this study took men with abnormal findings and basically randomised them to either have an MRI of the prostate and then go on to either have a biopsy if the MRI was suggestive of a problem or to stop their diagnostic journey there and be discharged to to follow up with um, ongoing PSA testing or to have standard care of the ultrasound-guided biopsy. And they look at the the outcomes of uh, the biopsy tests to see how many men are diagnosed with a meaningful uh, kind of cancer using fairly standard classifications of prostate cancer. So what was their their sort of top-line finding then? So I think the most striking thing is that um, of the men who were randomised to their MRI testing arm of the trial, about 28% of those men didn't need any further testing. So they didn't need to go on and have uh, a biopsy of their prostate. So they ruled it out at that point. So they, they in essence, ruled it out at that point, but they, they needed to go on and have some PSA testing just to be sure that, that nothing emerges later down the line. But interestingly, they also found that a greater number of men in the MRI testing arm who went on to have a biopsy were diagnosed with prostate cancer. So in essence, what they're saying is that they have improved two aspects of the diagnostic performance of the test, both its ability to detect disease where it is present and also to rule out disease where it is not present. Mm. Now, look, I, just gonna, I read this trial. It says it's a non-inferiority trial. What does that mean? <laughs> you must have discussed that impact within the BMJ Awards. Or did you just brush over that bit? Well, I have to confess that I was not the judge of this category. Okay. Um, Did that and, get brushed over then? And I, I couldn't therefore comment <laughs> on the deliberations. Um, but why do you mention that, Carl? Why do you well, I think it's an interesting concept in design and it's something that has been around for some time. But I've also ha- heard it about drugs. Yeah, yeah. And so a non-inferiority trial aims to demonstrate that the test is not worse than the comparison by more than a small pre-specified amount. And that's really important. That's called the non-inferiority margin. And you must know who chose that and why. And it's only when the advantages of this new chest clearly overcome the amount of worsening, then should you use it. Because you can't have any overlap. It's got to be really superior by that margin. And I think in this point, it did meet that non-inferiority margin. Yes, it did. So in that, they're saying that actually, because it's met that test, this should be implemented into practice. Yeah. Now, I'm aware, you know, I always like to go back into the world of systematic reviews and find out how this has been looked at. But it's interesting, there is is actually a systematic review out there that was published in 2015. But interestingly, they talk about, and, and in this, this was diagnostic accuracy studies. So why have they done those? Why, why are they different? Because these guys have done... Well, a these trial. were in single centres okay. for a start. So um, 
And I guess what they, they said there were underlying methodological flaws in the MRIs within these single centre studies, which meant you had to retreat the results with caution. So I suspect what they were doing there was the MRI, the ultrasound bi guided, bi guided biopsy, and then provide the result. So you okay. were doing them in a sequence. And so I both guess of the men, the, the men in those diagnostic accuracy studies were having both tests. It, it possibly is because in this they generate some sort of test groups. But I don't know. There must have been some flaws that led to doing it this way and they, and going in a way to separate them out because I didn't look into this systematic review, but there must have been some systematic errors in the way they were performed previously that meant it was more reliable to do a randomised trial to answer this question, which makes sense because I suspect... If you've got same people doing the ultrasound biopsies and then the MRI biopsies, then you'll have a contamination effect in how you start to understand and interpret the test results. Mm. And pretty awful for the men involved. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting, this idea that we should be doing more randomised trials within testing to come to definitive answers. Now, what's also interesting is I'm aware the NICE guidance on this topic is due for an update next month. Mm, that's very soon just to give you some relevant knowledge there, just to show you how today I am. But what they say... So is that uh, publishing next month or is the process starting next month? Mm, you'd have to speak to NICE on that basis because sometimes these timelines slip. But they recommend the rectal ultrasound guided biopsy currently. And I suspect if they looked at the systematic review, they would still recommend that. The question is, have they incorporated this evidence, which is a year old, so you would think it would be translated into into practice and that how the guidance is going to change. I'm going to hedge my bets and say if they've got it in the guidance, it will change. So my name is Viru Cassivis Nathan. I'm a urologist and researcher at University College Hospital London. Yeah, so um, you're here to talk about your um, research paper, which, as you will hear from the noise in the background, we are out and about, out of our little podcasting studio now. We are now at the BMJ Group Awards in central London, and you have just picked up um, the Oscar of the NHS, as they were termed today, um, for research paper of, of, of the year. How are you feeling? Uh, pretty elated. Uh, you don't win that every day. And it's the culmination of, um, as I said on stage, a decade of work in this area. So pretty chuffed. And Carl um, is moderating at the bar. So I'm, I'm going to ask you some questions. Um, and, w and we were talking about this earlier. Um, what, you said this is a culmination of a decade of work. Just talk us through, at the start point of your trial, what was the sort of state of the re research field and what was your question and why did you design it that way as a trial? So uh, let's go more fundamental. So the way we've been diagnosing prostate cancer for the last 25 years has been a traditional transrectal ultrasound guided prostate biopsy. The ultrasound images don't show you where the cancer is, it just shows the anatomy of the prostate and you take 12 cores from parts of the prostate in a systematic fashion but you can't see where the biopsy the cancer is so you, you therefore your cancer detection rates might be lower than there actually are because you might be missing important cancers you might be misdiagnosing certain cancers that might be aggressive as not so aggressive so that's the fundamental problem with the traditional pathway that we've been carrying out for the last 25 to 30 years so 
about a decade ago, we started looking more at MRI because we thought if you do an MRI of your prostate gland, you might be able to see where those areas are. And then when you do a biopsy, you're more likely to find the cancers that are aggressive and need treatment. And so when we started the precision trial, we just our group had just led a trial called PROMISE, which looked at um, how good MRI is in diagnosing prostate cancer in men with suspected prostate cancer. And they compared it to trust biopsy, the traditional standard of care. And it showed that it was more or less better. But the problem was is that that wasn't a real-world trial. Um, each patient had a large number of biopsies, and it was a traditional diagnostic test evaluation type study. So in order for us to understand how to use the MRI information, that's where precision came in. Promise showed MRI was good. Precision showed how do you use the information. So specifically, if you do an MRI, if the MRI is suspicious, you do a targeted biopsy only to suspicious areas. If the MRI is non-suspicious, you do not do a biopsy at all. And we compared that to a, another arm of all men undergoing the traditional pathway of trust biopsy without any MRIs. So that's where precision came in. And this was a huge trial uh, involving a lot of centres. Um, why did you take that approach? So the systematic review published by Schutz um, showed that the MRI and targeted biopsy pathway was at least as good as the traditional pathway, if not better, in detecting significant cancer and avoiding the detection of clinically insignificant cancer. However, that didn't change practice. So in order to change practice, we needed to show a result that was generalizable across a large number of centers in a study design that avoided the, bi the bias of a design where every man had every biopsy, which is how the studies were typically done. And that's why we chose a randomized design, and that's why we chose a multi-center study for it to be generalizable. Interesting. Um, so tell us what you found in a nutshell. So the MRI arm found a greater proportion of men with significant cancer than the trust biopsy arm. It also found fewer men with insignificant cancer, which is the type of cancer you want to avoid because it may not benefit from treatment. In addition, about 28% of men in the MRI arm avoided a biopsy, and the side effects from the biopsy were far fewer in the MRI arm than the trust biopsy arm. And the side effects were fewer just because less men had the actual biopsy done or there was something about how the biopsy was done that meant that in those men it was, it was less problematic? Primarily because fewer men got biopsied. Um, also in the MRI targeted biopsy arm there were a median of four biopsy cores taken compared to 12 in the trust biopsy arm. So probably you'll have fewer side effects in that group though I think the majority of that was because on an arm level there were fewer patients undergoing biopsy altogether. So you are feeling quite pleased with this result, presumably, that, that this is demonstrating that it, it works in a clinical scenario. Um, what are the next steps in terms of getting that into practice or persuading decision makers that this should be in practice? So I think um, the first thing is to show that it's possible to achieve these results in a multi-centre study, which we have. And the European Association of Urology guidelines have changed in March to uh, promote the use of MRI before biopsy in all groups of men. Um, so guidelines are changing already. Uh, NICE guidelines have released a press release saying that they will change their guidelines to support that view as well. And I believe the full guidelines are due to be out any time now. Um, in order to allow this to be diffusable to your average centre, so the things that people need to understand is the majority of centres in this study were expert centres. 
And as with most trials where you introduce a new technology, it takes time for your average centre to be as good as that centre. That requires training of your clinicians in reading the MRIs, training of your uh, operators in taking the biopsies. Um, in addition, you need more capacity. If we're promoting MRI before biopsy in all men, there are going to be a greater number of MRI scanners, and that's a capacity issue, and NHS England will have to take a look at that if they wish to go down that route. Um, so I think there are a few of the barriers involved. So it sounds like for, for a group of men, there's, there's good news that they don't have to have a biopsy now. Um, but the outcomes of the study are relatively short. So how... Um, what do you have in place to, to track the outcomes for those men who are told they don't have a problem to sort of be, be sure that they are true, true negatives, I suppose, or you're, you're, not, you're not missing um, cancer? So we do have ethical permission to follow up these patients in the long term. So we can go back, say, at one year, five years, ten years and find out what proportion had significant cancer who initially were told they didn't. Um, so we plan to do that. Now, the key thing to think about is how these men are followed up. So typically they're discharged back to the GP and they undergo PSA monitoring. So really they're in a quite a safe environment. They're not lost to follow up. Um, if their PSA goes up and there is risk of continuing risk of prostate cancer, they can have a biopsy. And in fact, in this study, we allowed clinicians and patients to make that decision at the end of the study. And we found that the vast majority of patients who had um, an MRI and say it was negative, didn't wish to have a further biopsy afterwards. And on the converse, there were a proportion of patients who had a trust biopsy who then went on to have an MRI. And I think that kind of also shows for clinicians and patients uh, what their preferences are. And I think that's the key. Um, if we look at the traditional way that we discharge patients with a trust biopsy that was negative, we know from the PROMISE study that the negative predictive value of an MRI is much higher than that of a trust biopsy and we've been discharging patients with negative trust biopsies for 30 years. So really we're actually adopting a safer pathway by discharging patients with a negative MRI. In terms of diagnostic performance of MRI compared to this alternative trust biopsy, we have that data from PROMISE, so we can say that for sure. In terms of long-term data, yeah, we don't have that data. And um, really what we need to show is if a group of patients are discharged with a negative MRI and are followed up for 10 years, what are their risks of developing metastasis from prostate cancer? In 20 years, what are their risks of death? And that takes long-term data. And we have about 10 years' worth of data and really it takes a bit longer for us to get solid data to say those things but I think the uh, on the balance of risks and benefits which is kind of what we deal with and in terms of your counselling of the patient of what tests they're going to get and what to expect I think the balance of risks and benefits are in favour of an MRI approach uh, risk stratification and decision making based on the results of the MRI. Do you think this will spark research or alterations into into the pathways for PSA testing more broadly? Will it, um, I guess, lead to either research or practice that might alter where your threshold is to look um, with, with an MRI at somebody with, with a mild or moderately raised PSA? Is, is that a sort of direction of research interest? Yeah, so we've been looking for a, a better version of PSA for a long time now, and we haven't found it yet. And you're right, the upfront diagnostic test is a PSA, and that determines which men then get a diagnostic test. So 
we feel that the MRI is one of the strongest predictors of a risk of significant cancer. And we think that if you use it up front, prior to a PSA, it could serve as a screening tool. Now, there isn't much work that's been done on this, but that's our next uh, line of research. And we have been funded by the MRC for uh, the Reimagine study, which will start to look at that. We talked there a bit about diagnosing disease in this case, prostate cancer. But that kind of obviously requires a definition of disease. And Carl, that's something um, that your journal's been writing about. Yeah, Ray Minahan and colleagues uh, published an analysis about the problems of disease thresholds and their impact on expanding disease definitions, particularly their effect on overdiagnosis and overtreatment. This is a piece of work that's arisen out of the Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference. There's a whole group of people who are really interested in these type of issues. And Ray's obviously really involved in that. Yes, and one of the things is they highlight several concerns with the current approach to disease definitions within guidelines. For example, approximately half of the older people population are defined as having chronic kidney disease, yet many are asymptomatic with no impact on their day-to-day living. New thresholds for gestational diabetes have meant that prevalence has doubled, and there are hypertension guidelines which have labelled half of the adult population as hypertensive. And I went and looked at these guidelines, and I am actually hypertensive according to these guidelines which is deeply concerning for me. But then I looked at the evidence and I think, look, this is by a group of people who are all generally in secondary care and are not thinking about the impact of the population and wider population in primary care. And that's what this is about. They're basically calling for a new approach to the development of guidelines that should involve stakeholders, should involve people in primary care, and come together for much more realistic, pragmatic guidelines that reflect the evidence and the potential impact on the population at large and the workload. So it's about sort of having a, a wider view, really, away from that kind of very specialist mono issue to kind of how this fits into someone's actual life. I think that's very interesting because I've just wrote an editorial on this, thinking about the issue. It's like the evolution of guidelines, isn't it? Where have they come from? Well, they've tended to come from secondary care. They tend to come from specialist area. Many of these guidelines are still in secondary care, people looking at them. But if you think like hypertension, when I first started in medicine, there were hypertension was dealt with in hospitals, but it's gone to primary care. And increasingly, we're pushing it out to the patients with self-monitoring. Mm. But the issue here for us is that when I thought about this is to affect the guidelines is really going to be different, difficult because there are so many of them. And nationally, there are so many. So what, what I put a caveat was for them to think about that actually what they need to come together as primary care organisations and set out some thinking and some definitions that come from within primary care mm-hmm. as opposed to coming from secondary care. And if they do that, then they may be adopted by guidelines. And there's, within that sort of overdiagnosis, um, what we've written on a lot in within the conference, there's a general worry that industry involvement sort of broadens disease definitions Uh, and so do you think that might have an effect on this are you sort of calling for for a moratorium on that side of it i think you know look this is not about the specific specialist diseases this is about the diseases where the majority are diagnosed and treated in primary care and so diabetes type 2 diabetes hypertension renal kidney problems, all of these issues are primary care-led. Therefore, you would consider the most appropriate 
diagnostic aid should come from within that community, not come from industry, not come from secondary care, not be set by conflict. And I think that makes sense. And because there has been a push to treat more and more people, to widen the disease definition, get more people on treatment, which creates more work for everybody, but creates more income for industry. And that's a real problem. And I think we have to wind back from that because we are creating a huge swathe of people who are medicalised and we're not really thinking through the consequences of that and also using an evidence-based approach to say, do these people definitely benefit from this approach? Mm. I think it's worth saying that that's not um, just... Those thoughts aren't particularly new or original. So if you look at things like the Institute of Medicine guidance on what a trustworthy guideline looks like, a key part of that and 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 these were published back i think in 2011 are that um panels who are looking at guidance should be multidisciplinary they should include methodologists and representatives including patients and including the clinicians that are expected to be affected by the guidelines so i think to carl's point given that most of hypertension is dealt with in primary care, you would expect that primary care clinicians should be shaping those guidelines. And if you're seeing guidelines that are not written by the people, the full spectrum of clinicians, including not doctors who look after those patients, then that should be a red flag that this guidance is is maybe not as trustworthy as it should be. So, I mean, part of the reason that we... Um we work with nice and published guidelines is that we do think they are trustworthy and a big chunk of that is to do with conflicts of interest which um, mm-hmm. Carl just mentioned there um, but that's something you've got particular interest in um, and yes. you're asking for some papers on this at the moment Helen? We are so um, we're mentioning the Institute of Medicine a lot <laughs> <laughs> today but they um, they did a report back about 10 years ago now looking um, at the issue of conflicts of interest in medicine um, and and I think since that report, it feels like there's been a culture change and in a slow way, and some things have altered in terms of both the transparency of um, interests in medicine and also a move towards greater independence from people with commercial or financial or other interests. Um, but the report also said that things were uh, quite uncertain um, and that more work was needed both to understand the problem and what the solutions were. So um, working uh, with with some external uh, guest editors, uh, Lisa Barrow and also Ray Moynihan, who, who came to us with this idea. And uh, wrote the paper for Carl as well. And wrote the paper for Carl as well. It's a bit circular, isn't it? Yeah. Um, we are uh, looking at developing a new stream and theme of content across the journal, um, research, uh, opinion, uh, academic comment, anything you'd like to send us um, to explore that issue and to look at some of the new themes. And I think there are some interesting um, questions, particularly there have been new powerful players that have entered the the evidence and clinical medicine arena, like the role of patients is much more prominent. So understanding what is their role with um, commercial commercial partners and how might that um, influence their work with then uh, other people, uh, looking at some of the big changes that have happened. So things like the Sunshine Act in the States mm-hmm. and greater transparency around interest, which has also given researchers new information about doctors, which they can look into as well. 
I think we're in a crossroads right now in terms of conflicts of interest. Uh, medicine, healthcare is a massive business, global business, and a lot of money is to be made. And I think we're at a, a, a position where we have to now think much better about what are conflicts, conflicts, when are they appropriate, when are they not, how should they be uh, made available so people can see transparently what's going on. Every time I see the public who's made aware of the impact of conflicts of interests in decision making, they are outraged. Mm. And yet we seem to carry on in this vein of, well, it's sort of, we know it goes on, but it's okay. We all have conflicts of interest. We have to somehow deal with them better to restore the trust in decision making. And I think this is why this series you should be thinking about submitting to it because I think it's really interesting and I would say that because I'm completely conflicted because I work for the BMJ (laughs) and that's my conflict. Um, Yeah I mean I I think looking at things like as a good evidence of you know how effective something like the Sunshine Act uh, is really important because you know in Scotland they just uh, Parliament there just turned down um, a kind of Scottish equivalent of it's that. It's interesting so as well that in America they're extending it beyond doctors now. Yeah. They're expended, extending it to things like, to people like physician associates because mm-hmm. they know they have a role. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're moving. So we often go about, you know, the transparency in America is far greater than what it is in Europe and what it is in the UK. And I think in this modern world, a transparent approach is essential. Yeah. So... Helen, where can people find out exactly what you want and and how to submit to that? So there is an editorial. Will you put the link? I'll put the link. Thank you. Um, So you will find out more about the call for papers in there. Um, So specifically, we want to understand the nature of commercial conflicts of interest better. We want to examine how those interests affect health and healthcare, including research and practice and education, to look at when those ties are necessary and when independence is is most needed and to share examples where people have moved from transparency towards independence. So if you have uh, some research, an opinion or a project that you've been involved in um, and you would like to tell us about it and maybe get it published or talk to us about it, then uh, please contact me. Great. Well, as Helen said, I'll put uh, all the links in the podcast text so you can go and do that. Great. Well, that is uh, a good point to leave our talk evidence for this month. Um, Helen, Carl, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us. And listeners, thank you very much for listening all the way to the end. Now, it's great to hear from you, and we want to know what you think about our discussions. If you have any thoughts on conflicts of interest or bacon or anything else, uh, go to bmj.com slash podcast, and you can see how to get in touch with us there. Or else Carl and Helen are on Twitter, uh, and so is BMJ, so you can get in contact that can way. Can I make too. a point? I know Helen, Helen's on Twitter, but she doesn't tweet very much. So I'm gonna, I tweeted uh, today, actually. There you so. go, we started again. I think that's because I'm I name-tagged you about a day or two ago, <laughs> going, here's talk evidence. So we're going to wind up. I'm gonna, when my cabbages are fully grown, I'm going to bring one in for Helen, a vegetarian, and we're going to get a tweeting about it. And watch Definitely. me get healthier in front of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it works. That's the science. Great. Um, well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. Thank you, Duncan. Goodbye.